You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Okay, welcome back everyone. This is Annie Rose Malamud and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. And I'm back today with a treat with Kamikaze Jones for our ongoing series that we've titled Anal Auteurs. And this is part two in that series, part two of four. And today we're talking about Fred Halstead. Hello, Kamikaze. Hey, Annie. Thanks for having me back. I've been looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to talking about all the fisting in these oh, movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fisting is a loaded signifier in a lot of Fred's work for, for various reasons within and without his control. <laughs> totally. My favorite anecdote that I read was just about everybody gasping when it showed at the MoMA. Uh-huh. Uh, Kamikaze, before we get into it, can you tell the listeners again who you are and what you do and all the filth that you're about. Yeah, certainly. So I'm Kamikaze Jones. I'm a writer, interdisciplinary artist who's often exploring post-porn studies, extended vocal technique, and queer hauntologies. Uh, I'm the current arts editor of Wussy Magazine, and I'm also the host of Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters, which is a podcast within the Wussy Network that explores the queer transgressive tradition through John Waters' work and soon uh, other pioneers of new queer cinema yeah check out pure garbage i was on it talking about fat sex so a lot of a lot of good stuff going on in our corner of the filthy universe so today we're talking about fred halstead which out of the like quartet of directors we're talking about is i think my favorite for what will be obvious reasons Mm -hmm. and we're so we're going to talk about his two early films la plays itself and sex tool he did make other later films that i just don't think are as like important in his oeuvre as these two and i did want to plug again the ask anybody podcast because they've talked at length about these films and they're also doing the uh, DVD Blu-ray commentary on them through Kino Lorber. I, I have, I, I own it. I listened to it. I watched it to prepare for this. It's wonderful. And the book Halstead Plays Himself by William E. Jones, because these really take care of Fred's biography, if you are super interested in that, because we're going to be focusing more on kind of our thoughts about the various thematic symbolic elements that are going on in these films. Yeah, the cultural ramifications, uh, different meta-referential layers that surround a lot of Halstead's ideologies. Um, I think the one book of theory that we are using as a platform is Bound Together, Leather, Sex, Archives, and Contemporary Art by Andy Campbell, uh, which was definitely informative for me in a lot of ways about leather sexualities and citationalism in queer legacies. And uh, and we love Liz, Tyler, and Keegan at Ask Anybody and uh, their amazing 
curatorial and archival prowess always. So always happy to be in dialogue with them. Yes, that podcast is so essential if you're interested in this topic. And the Andy Campbell book is really fantastic if you are a leather queer and you are interested in anything that we're talking about today this that book is kind of essential for we're finding essential because i think we're both like making our way through it for Mm -hmm. discussing this topic so a little some maybe important biographical details about fred halstead He's from California, which I think is important because that's the land of cults. And he grew up in the Dukabors Christian sect, which is like a sort of mystical um, Christian scientist adjacent sect. Um, he got Dianetics from L. Ron Hubbard himself as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> he got a Dianetics session. So, and there's a shot of the Scientology building in LA Plays itself. He was a Cancer, but he would often say he was a Leo. And he was really into this system of integrated playing cards. It integrated playing cards and astrology. I believe it's called the Cards of Fate. And he used this system to make all of his artistic decisions. So he was very like into that's into spirituality and he often embellished his biography and also vacillated between identifying as far right or far left like he would call himself a fascist but then at the same time would do like express a lot of like anarchist sentiment or socialist sentiment so yeah, and, and there's, you know, biographical context to prove that he was socially cognizant of, you know, social justice movements at the time, um, but the fascistic impulses could come from this sociosexual history of leather as a kink. And also, I think the cult of personality that he cultivates throughout his oeuvre is really interesting because it reminds me of, you know, like kind of like the charismatic cult leader, um, you know, who's very cool, calm and collected and espousing like, you know, these like radical diatribes, but also a certain amount of myth-making that you'd find in uh, the prevalent performance art at the time, like the work of Joseph Boyes or, you know, stuff of that nature. So I find that very interesting when when tackling his repertoire. Yeah, the myth-making is very interesting because he also is constantly saying things like he doesn't really believe in like top bottom dichotomy and that anybody could be a switch but while at the same time publicly identifying as a top mm-hmm. uh and astrologically and astrologically as a top even though he's a sensitive little cancer yeah a little crabby patty yeah but he was a leo rising so mm-hmm. he would take that that the rising sign and position that is you know maybe there's like so many there's so many layers here like it's also possible that the rising sign is like his dom persona but i also can't tell if he's like in on the bit and he's like into like um dysfunctional chicanery like if it's like supposed to be the failure to cultivate this persona and also i think something really interesting is in la plays itself uh during the industrial segment of the film which according to when you've seen it or the historical context could either occur 
in the beginning or the back half of the film. Um, there's a billboard for the film performance starring Mick Jagger, uh, directed by Nicholas Roeg and a collaborator, I think Donald Camel. Um, and that is one of the only films I can think about that is a male homosocial exploration of destabilizing identity of that era when um, as per our you know, respective research, Annie, we usually see female focused films like Persona and Three Women exploring that kind of destabilization of boundaries when it comes to identity. So performance is kind of an interesting anomaly um, as well as LA plays itself when it comes to these ideas of Persona. That's such a good point. And the different order. So let's talk a little bit about what the two parts of L.A. Plays Itself are. L.A. Plays Itself is from 1972, and it's made up of two distinct like chapters, basically. And they've played in different orders, given the circumstances. So the first chapter is, the way that I've seen it, is that the first chapter is the, there's two men in an idyllic sort of pastoral setting outside the city of LA. And they meet in like by a stream and a very kind of typical, um, more, more Peter Rocco setting, porn setting. And uh, they have like kind of very wholesome butt fucking. Um, and in this like beautiful outdoor setting. And then there's these like shots of bulldozers and salamanders and butterflies and other insects kind of emphasizing the, the nature that they're in. And then the second part takes place in the city of LA with Fred Halstead playing himself cruising at the various different famous cruising spots in LA and he picks up a young Twinkie guy and they engage in some hardcore sadomasochistic sex with fisting. So those are the two parts of LA Plays Itself. And originally when the film was first made, it was the industrial part that was uh, presented first. And from what I've read in Bound Together, the reason that it was reversed was to appeal to the postmodern sensibilities and the curatorial aesthetics of the MoMA when it was decided that it would be screening there, um, which is fascinating and kind of speaks to a type of reverse engineering that we're seeing in a lot of art today, like in terms of engineering things for certain predominant tastes or like, so something will go viral. Uh, like White Lotus comes to mind immediately for some reason. But um, totally. that's that's a bit of a tangent. I think the interesting thing about this film is it could be read in a kind of circuitous or ouroboric way um, because of its interchangeability. And it's also kind of like a malleable diptych and it changes the meaning depending on how you've seen it. Um, it's also interesting to think about like how one reading uh, pertains to the values of an institution and one is intrinsically more subjective and anarchic such a good point and andy campbell in his book really makes a lot of this the way that the context changes the order of the film can you expand a little bit more on what andy campbell says about 
the MoMA wanting this to play. So it plays at the MoMA in 1974, April 1974, and it's like an event, right? Uh, all of the all of the all the big names are there. And Salvador Dali, Andy Warhol. Uh, the press release has like quotes by John Ritchie and Nietzsche and. Uh, I think Godard, maybe something to that effect. Uh, but yeah, I think it was viewed primarily as an art piece on the East Coast, which is ironic because it's playing with these dichotomies of East versus West, not necessarily just in an American sense, but also in like a global sense. Um, yes. Because, yeah. Um, but also there's we, the that's... Japanese soundtrack at the beginning of the, in the yeah. pastoral sequence. In the pastoral sequence, there's like a uh, an amplified Japanese koto playing, um, which uh, is interesting because it reminded me of subtle Orientalism of like Lamont Young or like predominant avant-garde collectives at the time. And then in the industrial section, uh, Tonto's expanding headband is providing the kind of uh, distended and squelchy electronics. And... Let me see if I can find my notes about that because that's very interesting. So Tonto's expanding headband. Tonto is an acronym for the original New Timbral Orchestra, uh, which is the first and still the largest multi-timbral polyphonic analog synthesizer in the world. And it was constructed over seven years by Malcolm Cecil. And Malcolm Cecil basically created a lot of the pioneering synthesizer work on Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder, but also went on to collaborate with the Isley Brothers and various other people. I can't really tell. I I tried to do some research as to like whether or not this music was used like uh, with the band's permission or if it was just like, you know, de facto like pirating of the time that was mm. prevalent in a lot of these porn movies. I couldn't really figure it out. I know that Malcolm wasn't gay, but I also couldn't really figure out if there was like a gay link happening here. But um, it also is kind of reminiscent of like the cybernetic soundtracks of like Louis and BB Baron when they were con constructing that uh, ring modulators for like the Forbidden Planet and also some short avant-garde films with Aeneas Nin. Um, there's moments where it's like truly joyous, I think. I think there's a particular moment where the tone shifts when uh, the sub-character played by Fred Halstead's longtime lover, Joseph Yale, is licking his boots. It's almost becomes, it's like the celebratory motif. And then it gets more into like the post-industrial post -industrial squelchings and slurpings and stuff like that. Um, but then it's interspersed a lot of the time with this amplified coda, which suggests, I guess you could say a perversion of nature, but also like an adherence to nature being tied to like Eastern ideologies or Buddhism or, you know, this like Orientalist trope that happens in so much queer cinema of the time, like in Jack Smith's work or um, Ron Rice's work. Um, so yeah, it's curious because there is this kind of like signification of like nature with Eastern values. And it also got me thinking of like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, which I think came out around like 1974, just a couple years after this film. And uh, this correlation between American industrial values and hyper-masculinities mm. and then like Eastern ideologies. The Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance thing is such an apt connection, too, because in Fred Halstead's other early film, which we're not really going to talk about that much, Sex Garage, a man fucks a motorcycle, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, which is, like, amazing. Uh, he, and it really ties with what you're talking about with this idea of the industrial meeting 
this these kind of Eastern philosophies because we also you know what I talked about at the top of the show with Fred Halstead's biography these is these are obviously things that he was interested in so I really like your analysis of that and we have to normalize erotic swirlies and sex garage that's the only other thing I want to mention about oh that, yeah that film Yes. Bring back the erotic swirly. Bring back the erotic swirly. Sex Garage is interesting just to talk about it a little bit because Fred Halstead called that his trisexual film. So Fred Halstead was actually like with women for a long time and uh, almost married one and was doing S&M with women, which I found fascinating. Um not that that's not like a really typical traje- trajectory. I just don't think you always hear about men of this era talking about that so candidly. Mm -hmm. Um, And he called this his trisexual film because he was very interested in reaching, like bridging gay porn and straight porn world. So this was kind of his way to do that. And then like a bunch of gay men went to go see this movie and they're like, what the hell is this? This woman giving this man a blowjob and we don't want to see this. So, (laughs) and then there's also a man fucking a motorcycle. And that also correlates with the the prominence of the trans femme character Gloria in Sex Tool, who's a very interesting character who I could only find a little information about. Um, The name of the actress is Charmaine Lee Anderson. And the only information I could find about her is um, she left L.A. and started the Imperial Court of Hawaii in 1981 and founded it. so but there's sh- there's definitely some more about her if you get the commentary from the ask anybody oh. folks uh on the uh the dvd slash cool Blu-ray. yeah there's more biographical details about her um yeah the i mean the the, the sequence the industrial sequence was really a sharp departure from other gay porn films at the time um and like you said, this was received very much on the East Coast as like art. And in L.A., it was kind of just reluctantly accepted as porn. Leather porn just like wasn't as popular in L.A., which is so fascinating because the Tom of Finland house and foundation is in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you could speak that to that a little bit more, Annie, because I kind of found that fascinating. Even when like Halstead says that his his club had to close down in in the eighties because there weren't enough perverts in L.A. Like that's I've never been to the West Coast, hoping to rectify that this year. But I'm just curious about what that is because you know Folsom Street, you know, it's just like it seems like such a rich and pervasive history that. Yeah, in my under, I'm no expert in this, but from in my understanding, a lot of the kink culture that happens on the West Coast is in the Bay Area, where Folsom Street Fair is and the Castro, and this is like a very where I'm living is like a very hot spot for uh, queer leather history, both dyke and fag, so mm-hmm. tons of leather dykes, um, you know. Patrick Calivia and that whole crew, the Honor Backs crew were here. Um, and, you know, a lot of we're talking about people, too, that would go from New York to California. And, you know, like there's there's so many links. Um, and then L.A. is more because of the Hollywood element, just more vanilla. Um, it's more focused, I think. I think leather sexuality more so celebrates 
alternative bodies and Mm -hmm. ways of existing in the world and looking and leather community has always been much more welcoming to trans people and uh, during the height of the AIDS crisis was more welcoming to sick people and disabled people. So I think that because LA is kind of like the capital of networking and uh, you know, I love you, LA, but the capital of networking mm-hmm. and being fake, <laughs> I, I think it just doesn't jive as well. And yet, Tom of Finland is situated there. So there's also definitely um, a strong little hub of that. And for those of you who don't, I mean, I'm going to assume you know who Tom Finland is, Tom of Finland is, but his the foundation that was opened in his name, the house that he bought for a group of leathermen to live in and they still live there it is in LA and that that's so fascinating because um that really makes me think about leather being indelibly connected to like you know like working class socialities to DIY communities to mobilization and resistance which is you know absent in a lot of ways from the celebrity culture of LA and I think that's that bears mentioning that Hollywood is strangely decentralized in LA plays itself like it's a it's a, a spectral presence where it's I think the um perceived glamour of it is much more present and parodied in sex tool um but it's interesting seeing a film called LA plays itself and the idea of playing as performing or um you know teasing or like the idea of erotic play and and seeing Hollywood as a metonym completely absent from the narrative outside of billboards or you know um, these consumerist motifs that show up in a lot of gay porn at the time yeah it's a it's a specter but we're on the outskirts of that culture with these communities that have been driven to the margins like the hustlers at the various cruising spots whereas in you know, L.A. and New York, what a rich topic, right? I mean, <laughs> it, in New York, I feel there. I mean, there's not there's not really a porn culture in New York. And the mm-hmm. porn culture that is in New York is very much like in a fine art, experimental art realm, whereas in L.A. it's very consumerist. Um, there's more like queer porn collectives in New York. Um like Aorta Films, for example, whereas L.A. is much more consumerist. Yeah. Mondo Fetiche is in New York, too, right? I think so. Um, So there's more of a history of queer experimental avant-garde porn in New York and more a history of capitalist porn in L.A. And this movie is so like genuine and tactile and dirty that I think it just doesn't didn't jive with what was popular in gay porn at the time in that city. And Fred Halstead himself always said he was a flop in LA um, and that he was a hit in New York. And I I can see why. Yeah. And I think threshold and, and contradiction, and I wouldn't use the word hypocrisy, but uh shifting or like malleable dichotomies are like really at the root of Halstead's work in so many ways. And obviously, you know, we talked about this with the Peter de Rome work, like these like very present dichotomies between like the effeminate European and like the masculine American, like that's not necessarily what's happening here, but it is um, 
superimposed onto this idea of like warring ideologies, like, you know, like the death of hippie culture, like countercultural subversion, um, you know, New York versus LA, most obviously, like, you know, I think there's in the industrial se sequence, they're talking about how um, boys come from New York and they're eaten alive or, you know, and then also there's this like, ambiguity of consent and intention with the voiceover of Halstead's character being like you have to watch out for these other guys like you know like I'll take care of you I'll show you what's what but at the same time you're seeing these very I mean arguably predatory cuts of like abstract body parts in Griffith Park you know like where it kind of like equates cruising to a hunt or something along those lines and then you have like this you know interspersed like you know like Manson family coverage which you know obviously John Waters was exploring it the same time as like a commentary on like you know like infatuation and um and mob mentality uh perhaps you know clumsily in certain ways but still effectively or still you know um subversively um and thinking about that <laughs> i guess I, there's just so many binaries to collapse or that are like exploded in this film but also like reinforced and i think he's just like you know a complicated guy <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I think that's really the, the best way to put it is like there, I mean, he even said himself, everything in the film has been done deliberately, on the one hand, schematic, on the other, ambivalent. Am I for impersonal sex or against it? For the city or against it? So even he is not, he's not making a concrete statement. Um, he, like you said, there's a shot of the Mick Jagger billboard, there's a lot of emphasis on duality. Duality is also a huge component of occult spiritualism, which I think is really important, given that Halstead was into that world at the time. And of course, there's also the occult revival happening in the US and the UK at this time, which was very colored by the Manson murders, as you said. And as above, so below, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And also like a direct correlation with like the leather sexualities of Kenneth Anger's work. Um, and also existing in a consumerist uh, perspective, like, you know, in like Hollywood Babylon at the same time embracing the esoteric. Yeah, Kenneth Anger comes up for me too, speaking of Hollywood Babylon. And it's interesting because... Fred Halstead says he's a hit in New York and a flop in LA but at the same time like New York is not about all this like spiritualism occult not in the same way um shots fired <laughs> <laughs> listen I'm a New Yorker and I love all that shit but oh, <laughs> um but it's just not as like steeped in the cult it's not it is in the culture but not in the same way like LA, you know, California, like I said at the top of the show, is the hot spot of cults. Like, it's the hot spot of this occult spiritualism. It's, it's got, there's Kenneth Anger and the Manson murders. And, you know, like, that's what you think of when you think of LA, subversive LA history. So it, it is like a very sort of LA sensibility, but in a framework that plays much better on the East Coast. But yeah, duality, a huge theme of these of these films. L.A. plays itself is literally a duality between the pastoral and the cityscape. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was like following this guy on TikTok who was talking about like divine numerology. And um, 
he was just like, oh, the first 10 numbers are uh, the they represent everything in the world. So like zero is, you know, the nothingness, the void. The one is like the the like God, the one, the divine one. And then two is like all of these dualities, um, like good and evil, rich and poor, uh, you know, like all of these things that are constantly contrasting each other and like playing together. Three is like all of the, the trinities, like the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, you know, like, and these are all of the things that are too big for us to understand as human beings. So I've really been on that tip lately. So this this movie was um it's interesting people trying to find like well what did he believe and like you said i think it's all things at once and i think he's in on it like you were saying yeah. like is he in on this i think yeah he has to be right i think he's in on his own ambivalence as a bit because yes. i think okay <laughs> I, I think he likes obfuscating his intentions even from himself to a degree. And I think that's the mark of a good um, liar, but also the mark <laughs> of, a, of a good artist, an artist who can convince themselves of their own fabrications and their own world building. Um, like, you know, like there's like this like grifter or this entrepreneurial energy where it's like he says that he wants to like you inc include um, not just like white gay male socialities in his work with sex tool and with sex garage, but at the same time, he's also quoted as saying that he did it purely to open up um, his audience and to like hit different target demographics and to be an entrepreneur. Same thing with his sex club. It's like these, these dual motives um, of, you know, community, which is, I think in the Andy Campbell book bound together, community is a word that can is always like weaponized as benevolent, which, you know, uh, is it's complicated um weaponized as benevolent oh <laughs> that's scathing I, that's, that's so true it was fascinating and i think that well we can talk a little bit more about community action center later which was de definitely indebted to uh la plays itself and and i think that's where that quote about community is coming from this idea of like you know imagined communities or, or community as virtuous but also as um potentially insidious um and yeah i think it's also worth mentioning something that i did a little a, a little deep dive in is that after la plays itself william burroughs wanted fred halsted to adapt his book the wild boys into a hardcore pornographic feature and the Wild Boys, I think I have a quote from Dennis Cooper's blog, shout out to Dennis. Um, the premise of the Wild Boys is the Wild Boys themselves live as a tribe without leaders or hierarchy, but with a shared group consciousness. Rather than being individual characters, they are a manifestation of all that is repressed in civilized society, in particular the forces we know as Eros and Thanatos. In the novel, the Wild Boys periodically explode into orgies of wild, unstoppable violence or lust. And through the use of drugs and sex, the Wild Boys discover a magical technology of restoring the dead to life and so free themselves from biological dependence on women, birth, and death. And we know Burroughs was a misogynist in various ways. Um, and, you know, Halstead obviously had a fraught and ambivalent relationship to women. But um, if only this film was manifested, because it would have been like a Jodorowsky's Dune kind of situation or um, something along the lines of like, if I, I, I keep waiting for the day that Samuel Delaney's work will be adapted into like a film. And then, Fingers crossed. <laughs> Have you seen the 2017 The Wild Boys, which is 
Um, I, I haven't, haven't seen, seen it, it actually, but You're I, right. yeah, but Bertrand Madico, Madico I want to say, Mandico, is, um, I loved his movie After Blue, Dirty Paradise, that came out in 2022. Mm-hmm. I put it on my best of, so I would be really interested to to watch that. Um, I've, I've wanted to watch his work for a while, and I haven't had a chance to see it. The insidiousness of community. I mean, like we were saying, all of these big names came to this premiere, like Norman Mailer, Allen Ginsberg, Dennis Altman, Frank O'Hara. You know, and it's like these are all lauded men who are like horrible in various ways. <laughs> um, so more dualities, beautiful, important work made by, oh. you know, Allen Ginsberg was a huge supporter of Nambla, you know, oh, like, yeah. Yeah. So. And Jodorowsky was bad too. They're all bad. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> They're all bad. Um, which Gee, is, golly. yeah, which is like why I find this work doing this work so important because I love these men's work, except yeah. maybe Norman Mailer. Like I, I really do. So mm. I, I just find it important to I think it's just becomes part of the story, right? As opposed to let's, you know, let's talk about either one. Like, let's talk about both. You know, these are there. This is just more of the duality, right? That these people can make this beautiful work that resonates so much with us and also be like resonate so much with me as a woman and also be like virulent misogynists. So there's just everything is always very doing the the divine number two yeah and i have to say that i think a lot of that for me that's so interesting is like identifying with this work that maybe wasn't necessarily meant for us in our respective positionalities or maybe it was um and especially the queer tradition of citationalism and and um it and embracing legacy i think is really important because citationalism in as a queer strategy, as an innately queer strategy in a lot of ways, is like integral to a lot of the resignification of like predominant hegemonic values that we reclaim and therefore deconstruct and repurpose. And like I think Jose Esteban Munoz talks about disidentifications and like, you know, like reclaiming predominant cultural narratives from our own subject positionalities. Like I think that is really interesting and pertinent to the entire. Uh, historical trajectory of the leather kink and the leather community as well as um queer pornography and queer cinema well leather history right is all about these dualities i think that leather sexuality is sort of uniquely positioned to encompass conflict and these sort of divine concepts of two and three like everything being all things at once so i i think you know people who practice leather sexuality are very kind of tuned in to the way that consent is murky um even in this film right the consent is murky even in the way that yale and halstead would give interviews you can't really tell if there's like an abusive dynamic going on or if it's like very cheeky and they're both in on it. You know, like Halstead will say things like, 
like J- like Joseph Yell will be talking and then Halstead will talk over. He's like, well, I didn't really know what I was getting into when I was going to make this movie. And then Halstead will be like, oh, you loved it. Like, don't, like, shut up. Like, you loved it. Yeah. And is Joseph topping from the bottom? Yes. Like- yeah. Exactly. We don't really know because we weren't in the relationship. But everything is all going on at once where you you just can't really tell if they're in on in on this together or not. And it, yeah, I just find that so fascinating. Um, a quote from Halstead about the aims of his own films, which he, he also called L.A. plays itself a sadomasochistic fist fucking fist fucking faggot film. You got to love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and he says, on my first films, L.A. plays itself in Sex Garage. I screened them with big name critics. Up to that time, porno was always considered something you made money off of, but something you were never proud of, something you did secretly. Well, I just barged into fucking New York and said, this is a film, cinema, a work of art. It also happened to be gay, hardcore porno, a sadomasochistic fist fucking faggot film. But that's not the point. Like, you just said that it was. So I, it's it, he's constantly contradicting himself, in my he's, opinion. Yeah, he's a troll. He's a yeah. proto-troll. Yeah, he's a total <laughs> troll. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about, for some reason, while re-watching this film, that how, like, Rimbo was the, the proto-demon twink. And I forget how that ties into um, <laughs> this discussion, but I felt like it bared mentioning. <laughs> right. I mean, because Halstead is, like, this proto-troll, but he's also in that sort of Kenneth Anger, like, trickster god Yes, tradition. very much so. Yeah, the, like, puckish, which is, like, so L.A., though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And I think him and Joseph cultivate that kind of ambiguity and that like, um, and just like murky power dynamic on purpose, but it also it's an extension of their actual shtick, um, which is fascinating to me. Um, and especially how that reifies itself in pornography and like even thinking about like a film like Kamikaze Hearts and like how there's like these really fascinating examples of like meta awareness that are explicitly uh part of a queer pornographic experience oh this would be a fantastic double feature with (laughs) kamikaze hearts yeah andy campbell said about this kind of murky consent issue going on to be clear the sex is not represented as an equal and loving exchange of power and perhaps this is why the gay liberation and snm people were so perturbed by halstead's film Yale struggles and uncomfortably squirms throughout this act, making you wonder if the exchange is consensual at all. But I would contend that these meanings are largely constructed by Halstead's editing, both visual and sonic indeed. The soundtrack, which changes abruptly from dialogue to the atonal compositions of Tonto's expanding headband, goes a long way in destabilizing the images, as beats are hard and arrhythmic, interspersed with motorcycle muffler sounds, replayed at alternate speeds. The effect is one of speed, uncertainty, and imbalance. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, purposeful murky consent that is constructed largely by the editing and soundtrack. So I just found that really fascinating and like 
a perfect read of that scene. I think for me, like watching it, I just assume consent because of where I'm coming from as a leather person. And then I think if you weren't and you were just watching this and didn't know anything about that community, you would be like, this is a rape scene. (laughs) So that I and I obviously I think, you know, like we said, he's like a trickster troll. I think that's part of it. Yeah, and that pertains to the quote about him decentralizing his own ejaculation in his um, waking life. But then every time you see him on camera, he has like a elongated cum shot. Um, so, so interesting. I think there's what the quote is that like he he the best uh, sexual experiences had are ones where he doesn't reach climax or something to that effect. And then the act of coming is such an important. Um, routine or ritual for him but it also doesn't like represent the traditional money shot in a lot of ways no he's like rubbing it into his arms and stuff like lotioning himself yeah it's more ritualistic than exactly yeah cathartic like a bathe like a ritual bathing like a mikvah bath or something like (laughs) it's yeah it's exactly like you said it's more ritualistic i mean there's also the dualities between like switching right like top and bottom consent versus rape um there's those shots of the tate labianca murder headlines in the sequence which were people found very upsetting at the time and i find it interesting that there's this idea of like a murder as a stand-in for rape Mm -hmm. um as like the ultimate violation to the human body being like the taking of a life because andy campbell sort of equates them in his analysis where he's because he's talking about the duality of the consent and the idea of the Tate LaBianca murders is positioned as like in opposition to sexual consent, which I found interesting. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more for me, like those elisions? Because I'm curious. Um, I don't know what what that like kind of uh mixing of those concepts is for you i think for me i always think about kink as it as intriguing because it it makes there's it makes explicit the relationship between the sex drive and the death drive which is Mm -hmm. already there in all sex because if we want to get really psychoanalytic with it like there's this idea of the archaic mother like we come the ultimate mother is the void. We come from the void. We go back to the void. Mm-hmm. And it, because of that, because we have that relationship to the void that is explicitly tied to the way that we fuck and give birth, the sex drive and the death drive are inherently tied together. So I find that in horror in particular, murder is often a stand-in for rape, Right. Like we see in the slasher film, like the blade going into the female victim is the phallic objects penetrating. So I find it fascinating that there's this like implicit in the in the Halstead film, it, it murder is the stand in for the opposite of consent because of the violation of the body that occurs and like sends us back to the void. But it's also like appealing because these two men are playing with this idea of the void. And then of course, like the asshole also becomes the void. Of course, the yeah. void, whole theory, you know, anality. I mean, and it speaks to later theory by like Leo Bersani and like is the rectum a grave. 
but it also speaks to the idea of like the fist um, and fisting as like an act of necromancy or like a, yes. a generative act. Um, and I think that's really fascinating because depending on how you view the film and when the fisting actually occurs, uh, um, depending on which sequence you actually see, it can either be like the wrath of God or it can be like a, a generative event or it could be Edenic mm -hmm. or it could be directly related to the slippage or the switching between Eros and Thanatos. Like, um, and I think he says a lot that uh, switching is important to him and the idea of coercing someone to do something that they wouldn't necessarily be inclined to do is one of his ideals. He uh, literally said that. He literally says... Um, you know, I, okay, here, here's what he says. I am interested in the subtle aspects of sex, the mind fucking aspects of sex. I like to make sex films because it gives me an opportunity to state my views, a minority viewpoint, a personal viewpoint. That is the only reason I make these films. I don't do it for money but then later would say that he does. Nobody else makes gay films the way I do. I have certain ideas about sexuality. I don't particularly view sex as fun. To me, sex is not fun. To me, sex is not enjoyable. To me, sex is an emotional release. I am just speaking for me. Some people like it, some don't. Mine is personal cinema. I don't fuck to get my rocks off. In the best scenes I've ever had, I haven't come. I am not interested in coming. I got out of that years ago. I'm in interested in getting my head off my emotions off and if I get my dick off my rocks off it really doesn't matter that much to me that is very down on the scale I am interested in emotional satisfaction and intellectual satisfaction mine I'm glad he got out of coming years ago that's a hysterical statement <laughs> I got out of that years ago yeah. <laughs> one last job and then I'm done for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's like constantly talking about how he, it, he and and also says various things like we're talking about, about oh you can make anyone switch like they just need to they don't know they want it and you know you could just he he's at the time there was a a popular practice of gay men using keys to signify their position at position in the sex act and he would say things like I don't care about all this key stuff like I anybody can be anything and um you know he's but at the same time we're like are you talking about this like in a hot sexy way like you're gonna make people do stuff they don't want to do or are you really gonna make people do stuff they don't want to do like you don't know and that's very uncomfortable and I think that that bears to go back to the cultural resignification of of leather and and power dynamics like I think a lot of people coming back from World War Two, you know, mobilized around this idea of leather and like a sense of adventure. And like, that's how a lot of the gay motorcycle clubs came into existence is like, reframing these power structures and regiments they had during the war. And and in that way, the leather kink is like very overtly and metaphysically informed by the specters of like generational trauma um, in the fact that it's like literally made from like, you know, like animals, but like also like in the fact that it's like signified with all of this strife and a lot of the mobility and counter resistance and um, political subversion that arises from the leather communities is a direct disavowal of World War II. Um, 
And then I like went on this little tangent that I think it's kind of exciting and like, forgive me if it's too um, discursive, but I was like, well, if that's like the, the social history of leather. Like what's the social history of latex? Is it like, is it some, does it have something to do with like reclaiming the atrocities of like industrialized medicine? Does it mm. have something to do with like, is, is, is the lesbian latex movement about, um, you know, like networks of care independent from the medical industrial complex is that what bloodletting is about like oh i love this i mean i feel like there's so much there with because latex is he most heavily used in medical fetish mm -hmm. um and domestic fetish like if i'm thinking of the artist i have so much to say if i'm thinking of the artist miss meatface you know mm -hmm. she does a lot of like full latex enclosure in these domestic spaces or i'm just thinking of a lot of like medical fetish art um and i think that there's really rich territory there of this idea of women being uh you know disbelieved or cast aside within this like medical industrial complex or the domestic sphere and um perhaps that is a sort of like reclamation in the way that army or military imagery is for gay men's culture uh, there's also this idea, like leather, you were saying, is literally a dead animal. But there's also duality in the leather itself, because it's this dead animal. You had to kill something to make it. But at the same time, when it gets covered in uh, like fluids or is purposely cared for, it comes alive under your hands and it gets soft and pliable again. So it and the leather itself is is very kind of tied to this uh it ties leather in the sex act ties together this idea of like the death drive and the sex drive which 100 yeah yeah oh i love that and and also something that I, I thought was wild when i was like i was like who's attributed to the discovery of latex the first thing that came up in google and i was like fuck you google was christopher columbus is widely attributed with the discovery of latex because he saw a native of haiti playing with a ball made from the gum of a tree and i was like god damn it like fuck but you, that also Columbus. <laughs> yeah i was like fuck that but also that's that makes so much sense as a correlation to the history of leather because it started with like a hegemonic like kind of regimen and like a you know like a war power structure or like a war machine and then both of these materials were re-signified outside of their utilitarian usages um in a way that you know embraces arrows and thanatos so i love that that's so <laughs> smart you're so smart Oh, right uh, back at you, friend. Yeah. <laughs> There's also, I want to talk about the masculinity in these films. There's images of rusty nails and spurs that are intercut with the blowjob, uh, which Andy Campbell says, again, evincing danger and mythic figurations of masculinity. Um, there's also, like, theories that this film was widely praised among the art star art star crowd, like Jonas Mikas and these other important artistic figures like we talked about. But there was also negative reviews um, from, you know, the gay liberationist groups or uh, uh, more L.A. based porn people. And a lot of the theory around that is like the negativity is due to the fact that the film is in the butch style as opposed to the femme style 
which Andy Campbell says in his book. What does that mean? Like, do we agree that it's butch? Uh, I have mixed feelings about this because I was reading that section too. And like they talk, I mean, I see what I see what they are saying, like in terms of like Pat Rocco and like Arthur Bresson's work of the time, like where it's just very like, you know, like a, a feminine elitist kind of pastoral classical music, like, you know, like more Baroque mm -hmm. um, depictions of like gay male sexuality. I wouldn't say swishy per se, but I would say um, this idea of like, oh, there's a nice little oboe motif that's happening during this rim job. You know what I mean? Like it's more that... like classical Greek, uh, you know, hearkening back to the classical era kind of thing. Yeah, but that feels like a dangerous dichotomy, which I'm sure Halstead would have loved because, you know, it's also associating the butch um, aesthetic with like, you know, like rough editing, rudimentary, like like hypercuts, like montage, like anti-dialectical montage per se, or, um, you know, an impulse that isn't necessarily linear, um, which is interesting. Um, and if then that thinking... it wasn't expanded at all on, on at all in the book. I was yeah. like, you're just gonna say that? You're not gonna say what you mean? And uh, I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I sort of like, I mean, as a femme leather dyke, I felt very strange about that because I don't think that it's shot in the butch style. I think it's in the leather style, and that's what people didn't like. And yeah. I I think there's of course like a lot of masculine signifiers in both the movies and LA plays itself and sextual, but there's also like lots of femme stuff and sexual in particular. Um, the trans woman who's narrating the whole movie, there's a drag queen sequence. That's like maybe one of the first times we ever saw a drag queen in a porn film. Yeah. And was that supposed to be like a Marlena Dietrich bit? I couldn't really. Yeah, I think so. And also that was originally supposed to be played by divine. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Really? They, what he, happened? Um, I think they. I don't know actually, but that I think they ultimately ended up going with, but that that actor. But they. But she did love this film. He, this yeah, and that makes sense because Glenn was probably in in town for like something with the Coquettes or something, or that's probably why they were thinking it would line up. Yeah. Yeah, and Divine had one of the blurbs on this film, which was just like. It's filthy. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that would wouldn't that have been so cool to have a fat drag queen doing that scene? That would have been incredible. Um, I think that the interesting thing about Sex Tool is it's kind of like a loose parody of like Grand Hotel or something to that effect, like very loose. And like these vignettes are structured around the framework of this like hedonistic hotel party. And like, you know, this trans femme woman that all the faggots like idolize and worship and kind of like deify and like, you know, that, you know, classically lovely but problematic way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it does centralize Hollywood in a way that L.A. plays itself doesn't, which I think is really interesting, or at least the Hollywood sensibility. Um, yeah, or per um, parodies it. Yes, skewers it. Skewers yeah. it, but also embraces it in a way. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, I the film, I would say, is a bit more disjointed, and I feel like less schematic um, and arguably more ambivalent uh, if we're talking about Halstead's impulses. Um 
but I do love the character of Gloria. I love this, like her red corsage and her all white dress. And I love her ease of like navigating the, the social like um, situations. I love her talking about how much she loved her mother because she bedded hundreds of sailors and she would secretly try on her like padded bra when she wasn't looking. Like there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, I like the opening sequence where it's just, uh, Halsted and his like haunted like Pasolini like stare like breaking the fourth wall and like a, and just like looking at the camera suffused in like green mist and like in like a anal cave you know it's well the other thing we didn't mention is that Halsted was actually also an abstract painter mm-hmm. and uh, his work has been described as at once cave like and colonic so there we go yeah so <laughs> like you said. <laughs> Very much the the anal void. Um, and there's also, you know, that when he that close up of his own face where he breaks the fourth wall and stares directly into the camera. Andy Campbell says with a pornographically penetrating gaze, the intensity of this direct address is unmatched. It insinuates that Halstead is not content with vigorously topping Yale unless he's topping his viewers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think. Maybe that's a more interesting dichotomy to explore is like the bottom aesthetic versus the top aesthetic in I think that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, I think this is just made by a dom. Whereas I think there is like a different quality to something like Destroying Angel, which is made by a bottom. I would definitely agree with that (laughs) assessment. (laughs) What do you think the difference, like what's, what's the duality there? What do you think makes one more one than the other this reminds me of the poet noah ross and his book active reception which is like allowing a poem to bottom rather than dictate action and i think it's a certain framework of spatiality that is different i think it's like invitational i think it's like more structured around this idea of beckoning of like giving space rather than dictating space Mm. um i don't know this is just like you know a free form speculation but i think ambient motifs and like long takes i would consider as like uh an aesthetics of bottoming mm. or a cinematic vocabulary of bottoming like all right let's let's get real if we're talking about like straight like auteurs i would say that like tarkovsky is bottoming aesthetics i would <laughs> <laughs> and i would say eyes eisenstein is top aesthetics love that yeah <laughs> i mean i think that the top the the top aesthetic uses more like this Kuleshovian editing style to like force you to associate certain things with one another. Whereas like you said, the bottom aesthetic is more like open and holding space. The top is more guiding you through the space. I don't know. I find this very fascinating as a top who like is out in that in my in, in my kink top persona as part of my work yeah. um I, that resonates with me this idea of like guiding people through things versus making space for them because i think i'm very much in the former mode of well and extends to your curatorial practice as well and mine i think you know you know from one top to another i suppose hot 
Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm like, I'm traditionally, I come from a tradition of chaotic verses, but I'm, I've been functionally at Dom Top for a couple of years now. I so, also yeah. come from a tradition of chaotic verses and I'm functionally a Dom Top. Um, I'm not going to say I'll never bottom again. I also enjoy that, but not, I don't often want to. Um, but it, then that's just out of like years of experimenting. I figured out what I, what I like, um, more than anything, but I, yeah, I think that's really this top for top conversation we're having right now is like, I think, cause we so often get things from, I think when we think of, uh, S and M, we think of like. Venus and Furs, uh, Story of O, which are all of these like from the bottom submissive perspective, right? Mm -hmm. We don't get a lot from... Justine. Exactly. Yeah. Well, even, you know, the Marquis de Sade, though, as a top, writing a... Me calling the Marquis de Sade a top. I'm going to get canceled. Hysterical. (laughs) But like (laughs) as writing this like bottom character. Well, also Justine literally being dommed by circumstance and by fate is just, it's like Jacobian tragedy, you know? Like, yeah, and I think yeah. that's what I love about like Ari Aster's films too, is like the inevitability of doom. And like, I'm not sure if I would call Hereditary like a bottom aesthetic film because it has the inevitable framework of, of absolute demise. But <laughs> maybe that's kind of like what we're getting at though, is the way that the death drive is conceptualized by the top versus the bottom. Yeah, 100%. Right, whereas in The Destroying Angel, it's like the inevitability of that doom. uh, And in L.A. Plays itself, it's like taking that, like putting it in a stranglehold, like with those newspaper clippings of the Tate LaBianca murders, like shoving it in your face as opposed to opening up for you. Yeah, uh, there's uh, something else that I wanted to make a note of that I thought was really fascinating where it's like um, this particular motorcycle club uh, would do this semi-annual pageant, uh, this queer motorcycle club that is mentioned in Andy Campbell's book that is this pageant that is a World War One fighter pilot is shot down and he's resuscitated by a Red Cross nurse. And that was a very important framework for this like uh, motorcycle club, mm. this leather club. And I think that also speaks to this duality of like tops versus bottoms aesthetics and like caregiving or like, you know, like bottoming from the top or vice versa. It's making me think of like the Duke and Burgundy as I talk about it, but it's also something that pertains to our conversation about the historicity of latex or the historicity of leather as like, you know, like being reclaimed by, you know, uh, the other. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the caregiving thing. And I mean, I think top, like the Dom and the sub role both provide a very specific kind of caregiving. Like we've been saying, the submissive is more holding that space or and um, not guiding you through, but being beside you through, giving you the service of taking you through a series of rituals. Whereas the, the Dom film um, caretakes for you by forcing you to face the most uncomfortable aspects of your own subconscious. Uh, yeah. So there's the, the one 
final thing I want to say from um, to talk a little bit about the MoMA aspect is uh, Andy Campbell also says the shot of the American flag and the strip of mine at the end of the Nature Act would then serve to connect the dots together instead of ending with the indictment that urban encroachment is a ruination of the natural utopia utopia of the canyon this ordering of the film indicates that such encroachments partly facilitate the expansion of cruising grounds and new forms of fucking this is like very like long live the new flash parks Mm -hmm. docks auto body shops as well as fisting and in this light the actions of the bulldozers are a visual prelude to the plowing that yell receives (laughs) so yeah, very long with the new flesh. And like, I did think about, um, you know, human humanity as a technological animal when I was watching LA plays itself. And like the idea of like adapting ergonomically to the technology that we've created um, as an extension of our sexuality. Um, so the bulldozer plowing makes perfect sense. Yeah, the marriage of the human and the machine and making new holes uh, using, but in in LA plays itself is not so much about making a a new hole as it is about making a new dick, which is maybe another uh, piece of evidence for the, the dominant film. uh, Whereas like Videodrome, something like Videodrome, like we're making a new pussy on a man's stomach in LA plays itself. We're making a new dick with the fist. And also in sex tool with the nightstick when there's that whole cop sequence. Yeah. Yeah totally and it's yeah it's uh technocratic phallus like i think that's really interesting wow videodrome is like (laughs) as wide open gaping futuristic pussy is great (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah i think the only other thing that i'd want to um add quickly is that uh community action center which is a that's right. 69 minute sociosexual film that primarily ex- was like the, the second overtly pornographic film to be included in the MoMA film collection after LA plays itself. And wasn't that in 2010? 2011. Yeah. 2010 or wow, 2011. Wow, something like that. That's a really long time between them. I know. It's not. And I think I'm pretty sure that Bruce LaBruce has had a retrospective there, but I'm not sure if he's been acquired by the permanent collection. Okay. Um, I'd have to do a little digging on that, but that would definitely be after community action center. And that film has, some shot for shot remakes of LA plays itself, which the filmmakers AK Burns and AL Steiner saw at the MoMA. So I think the framing of that work as um, belonging to the institution is really interesting, especially for lesbian and trans filmmakers and participants of this sociosexual uh, porn film to dissect and to expand upon in its ideology. And they also, Community Action Center came with a zine that was used as clip notes to, to contextualize a lot of the um, vignettes of Community Action Center. And there's a lot of famous um, queer and trans performers involved. Uh, Justin Vivian Bond famously narrates a sequence of Community Action Center. I think that's Wu a Seng. sex tool. That's, yeah. that's very sex tool, the, the trans woman narrating the action. Yeah, and I think there is some dicey, maybe, I'm not sure, like maybe dicey identity politics that happen in Community Action Center. I've never been able to actually see it. I've, I've never seen I've, it either, full disclosure. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's been hard for me to like acquire on the internet. Um, and it's also safeguarded by the institution. So there is that aspect of it. Um, but I know, I know Maggie Nelson was talking about like seeing it uh, 
in the Bay Area and how it has a lot of characters from that area at the time. Also, the shot for shot remake of the sequence from L.A. Plays itself is the sequence where uh, Joseph Yale is crawling up the stairs to lick Fred Halstead's boot. And the characters in Community Action Center that actualize that shot for shot remake are named Jock Strap and Universal Twink. So it's like a, a very direct nod to yeah. <laughs> that sequence and to those performers' positionalities. Yeah, and they're able to, you know, before the Fred Halstead release that happened very recently, they would have seen it, like you said, through the MoMA collection. And yeah, just like the MoMA as a force in this narrative. I mean, it Halstead's film being inducted into the MoMA lent him huge clout and leverage, and he very much enjoyed that. So, and at the same time, like, it's so anti, like, counterculture to have something inducted into the MoMA. But then at the same time, the Community Action Center is, like, such an inherently countercultural project. It's, I mean, it's just, you know, this is tale as old as time, right? Like, the art institution. And reverse engineering, where it's like we commodify ourselves and we like package our art in a certain way, if not for social media, then for like academia or for, you know, institutions that'll give us grants. And, you know, we're applying for these jobs where we, you know, commodify our identities. And like, you know, it's like just a, and now it's now reverse engineering has been commodified by the mainstream when you have everyone trying to like make a TikTok single or like have a memeable moment where the gays are trying to kill you. So for better or for worse. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like the only person in the world who doesn't find that White Lotus thing funny because I'm like, this was like made for memes, but I also <laughs> understand why people love it. I think it was done more successfully than other recent examples that yes. I've seen. Yeah, it's not um, like Drag Race where they're like constantly trying to make yeah. a memeable moment. And you're like, girl, this isn't stop trying to make fetch happen or whatever. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, definitely way more successful than than anything like that. But yeah, reverse engineering the way that that has been used in marketing for so long, for decades, and now like we everybody does it. Um and this idea of the MoMA wanting to reorder the parts of the film so that we celebrate the industrial, I I found that so interesting too. Um, given yeah, very the, Italian futurist. Uh... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with Fred? No, I think we I think we've got Fred pinned down, much to his chagrin. <laughs> I'm I'm really happy with how this conversation panned out. Um, yeah, me too. It's always such a delight to to scheme with you. So I think that we've, as as Kamikaze said, pinned down Halstead, much to his chagrin. Um, and I, I'll see you next time. We'll see you next time for the next installment of Anal Auteurs. We've got two more left. We're going to do Wakefield Pool and Jack DeVoe. Until next time, Kamikaze, where can the people find you on the internet? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Kamikaze Jones underscore. And uh, you can also, we have an issue of Wissy Magazine Volume 11 coming out in a couple of months, which should be exciting. And you might see some familiar names included in that uh, latest edition. So stay tuned and... Thanks for listening to Anal Auteurs, everybody. Yes, I have a piece in that upcoming Wussy 
magazine and uh, about lesbian isolationism in horror. So check that out. I'll be promoting the hell out of it, of course. So see you. Likewise. Yes. See you.